0: The talk for this evening is on the theme of Insight Meditation. Over the years of the privilege of the opportunity to serve the Dharma, both here at IMS and in other places. There has been, generally speaking, a growing degree of interest and exploration in the field of meditation, in the the field of uh, insight meditation. And this tradition, like a number of others, continues to attract uh, widespread interest for more manner of uh, people and backgrounds. And one of the healthy aspects of the insight meditation tradition, speaking of course in a, a general way for the moment, is that there has been and continues to be a recognition that... The truths of life, the truths of life, cannot, in fact, be contained at all within a, a particular form. Not you, nor I, nor anyone else on this earth can hold the truth, can be a, a possessor of truth. And the very nature of things doesn't doesn't allow truth to become a possession of any individual or any tradition or any religion or view. And in a way it is the appreciation and realization of this is in fact the saving grace of us all thank goodness, no one can possess truth, can claim truth, hold it. And one of the ways that this has been, among the many ways that this has been acknowledged in the insight meditation tradition by the teachers, generally speaking, and by those who come to such facilities as IMS, is that, there is a widespread exploration taking place of looking into life, touching on the, the truths of life. And in the last year or so, uh, as it were, along the, the gossip line of the yogis and teachers um, meeting together not only in retreats but outside of retreats as well, one of the focuses of interest has been what is in the Tibetan Mahayana tradition is called zogchen Zogchen teachings and out of the passing this concept along the grapevine at an alarming speed, there has been quite a bit of traveling taking place among some of the uh, teachers and yogis who have participated in retreats here and elsewhere for quite some years, to in a way dig out some of the zogchen t- teachers. Yvonne sits here and smiles. She's one of the diggers. <laughs> and and what has been found and appreciated is that quite often the image of mahayana. Tradition, particularly Tibetan Mahayana, is one of tremendous, colourful, we might say, and diverse expressions of religion in its form and its colour and its presentation and its rituals and a huge variety of techniques, sometimes mind-boggling in their diversity. And in all of that diversity, there's, has you been know, a connection has been made with Dzogchen teachings and what has been found and what has been appreciated is that between the two traditions, there's coming about a real appreciation of the similar facets of them. And so Yvonne, just before coming here, just before we're talking hours, before arriving here last Friday, is one of those who is participating in a two-month Dzogchen retreat in upstate uh, New York. And a number of our friends are there at the same time, sitting there and probably sitting there in their spot, just as we uh, here and now are sitting here, and including uh, Joseph and Sharon, two of the co-founders of IMS, and the teacher there, what's his name? Kempo. Nisho <coughs> <Huh? coughs> Kempo. God, unbelievable names. Kempo is enough. Kempo, Nisho <laughs> <laughs> Kempo, Kempo. Uh, is uh, uh, teaching there at this time. And I think one of the healthy aspects of this is this willingness, both amongst teachers and uh, yogis. To explore diversity, which means, I think, in a very meaningful way, one isn't restricting oneself to any particular form, any particular mode of instruction, any particular technique, any particular individual. But I think it's a very healthy sign in this tradition that that expensive exploration is taking place. And, uh, Sometimes I hear, as a, a teacher, people say, well, they will say to me, Christopher, does it mean that perhaps the teachers and uh, the meditators, the senior meditators, the golden oldies as I refer to them, does it mean that perhaps this tradition isn't providing enough so therefore they've got, people have got to go, including teachers, I've got to go elsewhere and do a bit more digging elsewhere to uh, get a bit of extra satisfaction, get another fix. (laughs) And having talked with teachers and friends on this uh, theme, it's not the message which I hear at all. I don't get the message of shortage of therefore look outside, look into another form. I think it's much more in the spirit of interest that the spiritual life is a very diverse and expansive life and doesn't need to be, for any of us, confined to something in particular. And in a way, Joseph and Sharon and Ramdas, who was there for a couple of weeks and other friends Really, are putting out a very valuable and important statement to to all of us. And I think another important aspect of this as well, that uh, an expensive, uh, an exploratory spiritual life also saves everybody from being in a cult. Another aspect of this. <laughs> so, in that respect. It, Insight meditation has, and it has been made clear over many, many centuries, and similarly with uh, Zogchen as a kind of uh, Mahayana counterpart, we might say, to Vipassana uh, tradition, that has, has been said over many, many centuries. Let's look at the relationship to what we do. Let's see into that very, very deeply. And let's, right from the very beginning, not build up any attachment or any identification with the form which we employ, with the resources in the present which we are using. Let's not make too much of it. Let's see the emptiness as well. In that, in the course of a, of a day's, day of meditation, sometimes when we give care and concern to meditation, what we do is establish the interest in the object of meditation. And one of the things which is being put out by the Zogchen teachers and I think it's a very, very important point and certainly one for us to take notice of, especially those who are lovers of meditation objects, is how easily, through sincerity, through commitment and interest, we become too involved in the object. It's as though sometimes when we are meditating, whether it's with the breath, whether it's with the body, whether it's with the sounds as we will expand out our attention tomorrow, or whether it's just the arising and passing of the thoughts taking place, that sometimes the very movement of the attention to the object, to what we're looking at, it can Rather, fix it. That the object gains too much significance for us. And when that gains a certain significance, we start using the meditation to measure our success and failure. In other words, if with the meditation one is able to concentrate on the breath, and keep that going for a period of time, that ability to stay with that object is regarded by us as the criteria of success. Easily. We want to do that, we've got an interest to do that. When we can accomplish that, then we say, oh, my practice is getting better. I'm getting my meditators act together after all these years. And, one feels a certain focus on the object. And so sometimes, I think there's a little misunderstanding that can take place in which the power to concentrate, the ability to concentrate, becomes the yardstick. But for that ability to concentrate, and that va- ability varies considerably from one person to another, another, it requires a great number of supportive conditions to be able to concentrate. It requires a lot of cooperation from around you. It's not easy to cooperate if somebody was tapping on you on the shoulder every two minutes during the sitting. Bells were going off here and there, doors were opening and closing. So we need an environmental cooperation to be able to concentrate on something particular. But we also need uh, a cooperation born of our own human, we call it personal environment. That means if one wishes to stay focused and concentrated on the breath, it needs quite a lot of cooperation of the mental, emotional, physical, conceptual conditions. One might almost say they have to be agreeable. And if those conditions are there as well there's a certain degree of relaxation comfort uh, interest to be here and now and those supportive factors as well as the environmentally supportive factors then we might find with some effort or with not much effort we can concentrate on the breath we can fix the object in this sense of fixing the object and staying One pointed on it becomes an affirmative expression for us of what meditation is. Is it meditation or is it just concentration? Because the environment inside and around one is permitting it. Is there a difference? In the Zogchen teachings, as I've been hearing uh, from Yvonne, she wouldn't claim to be an authority after a month, I'm sure, but uh, sh- she has been telling me that one of the... Uh, in- she better correct me as I speak, uh, but one of the uh, encouragements and expressions of the teachings which are taking place there at the moment is an open or expansive awareness and quite a lot of encouragement in those teachings to keep the eyes open and not to be too concerned too focused on a particular object right good it's a miracle and in that more open and expansive attention the object itself which is one of the features of vipassana meditation isn't a particularly significant feature of zogchen meditation, zogchen awareness. In that they have, have been encouraged to keep, as they say, keep the eyes open to practice, one might say, to meditate upon sky awareness just to be aware of the sky, just to be aware of an expansive, open field of attention. So sometimes when our attention is open, we experience attention to an object, concentration of an object, and other forms, a more open attention. If I may just come back to the meditation, here, otherwise it would sound like a sales pitch for (laughs) Zogchid, it is. Um, So, when there is an object which is established, one has established an object, then one finds at times that the attention moves away from the object and other objects begin to appear. When other objects begin to appear and there is the losing of concentration on the breath, the other objects appear to be in opposition to this concentration. The other objects appear to be in opposition to that object which one is concentrating upon. And so then we enter into a struggle. It's not quite a life and death struggle, but it ought to be. We enter into a struggle of trying to be with the chosen object, the given object, and minimizing the time with the unwanted object. And this becomes the story of our life. All in a moment of meditation. So, what is happening in the relationship in the dynamic between awareness or mindfulness and its support in terms of the object? What's actually what is the push and pull which gets those the attention and the object so fixed and so important? What is the differences that we are seeing between a breath and a thought? A breath and a mood. A breath and a mind state. A breath and a pain in the knee. A breath and the sound of somebody else moving around us. If I have got myself into a state of one is in opposition with the other, and if I have solidified that view, I must be looking at what I think is real differences. I must really imagine and I must really believe in the strength of the differences to make the opposition. And then my meditation will become a struggle, it will become a fight, in which I'm trying to get rid of this, call it what you will, sounds, body pains, um, thoughts, of course, uh, and all the other mental entertainments that go on in the heaven and hell realms of the mind states. I'll be trying to get rid of that, move away from that, so that I can hang on, keep to my original object. My only reason to really do that is because I really think the two are really different, and it's going to make a real difference if I am with one or with the other. I'm not so sure if the difference is as big as we imagine. So we're here to dispel imaginings. Therefore, liberation is close. Sometimes, in this confusion of awareness with concentration, When we're just concentrating rather exclusively, I'm taking the breath or the body, it doesn't matter what the object. When we are concentrating rather exclusively, sometimes we find ourselves using and employing a a label to work with the meditation. Sometimes, because somebody left me a a note on the board uh, a day or so ago, that the experience that takes place is one uses a, a label that helps to define things, and certainly has a usefulness. Thinking, breathing, remembering, hearing, whatever the label is. But, because human beings, because the mind is so easily subjected to conditioning, that what can happen is that the label comes in of its own. We are labelling furiously away, but nothing to label. The mind has made a habit of it. For others it might be in the form of a mantra. Again, can be very useful, can contribute to calmness and relaxation, can help to bring mind and body together, many valuable uses. But easily... The very repetition of a word, and there's no such thing as a sacred word, of, of course, this is more mythology, that the very use of a particular word in its repetition itself gets mobilized, itself starts recycling through consciousness, and it doesn't require from us any awareness, it's just... Doing itself. Just recently, I was rather amused. I was just in, uh, I better not say the place, I was just in another country. (laughs) And one afternoon, the staff of another center and I, we went out, they said, Oh, come out and have a a coffee. You know, getting out of, when you're a meditation teacher and spending four or five months a year. Uh, doing Dharma service in retreats, it's a, it's a mini liberation in itself, getting out of the retreat to go for a coffee. You, know, you, know, you, know, you will know what I mean that comes Sunday afternoon. And so we went, we went out and one of the people who was on the staff was using um, a mala. And he had the mala and the instructions from his Korean teacher, was to repeat the mala through the day. I think it was 24 times, I can't remember the number of times, to say I had a mantra and to use the mala. And that can be, again, valuable for relaxation, for concentration, for spiritual reminders, etc. What amused me while doing doing this, that he was doing this in one hand and had a cigarette in the other. (laughs) This could be very non-dual, but it's hard to get round it. And so, sometimes the mind can be at work in one way, just as it can be with the breath. One can be engaged in contact with the breathing and simultaneously, tremendous amount of thinking going on. The mind is smoking away over some issue while being in touch with the breath. So, there's this extraordinary capacity that takes place where it seems like consciousness has this uncanny capacity to have different things going on simultaneously. And we say, God, this is my life here, in this smoke, in this mantra, in this mala, in this breath meditation. So then, of course, we think, well, if that's how I'm experiencing it, then the interest would probably would be is if I concentrate much more, I can keep out the smoky states and I can just focus on the in-breath and the out-breath rather purely. And some who have the concentration power can do it. But supposing you haven't. Supposing you're now on your 97th retreat. You've sworn to yourself you won't do a hundred retreats, more than a hundred retreats, unless you can observe three consecutive breaths. (laughs) You've reached the end of your tether. So I see sometimes the, the interest... And the desire for concentration is misplaced understanding about meditation. You don't need to concentrate to be liberated. The Buddha has never, here we go, the Buddha has never said concentration is important. A few extra grey hairs will arise amongst some of our teacher friends, but they won't. <laughs> Especially in this place. <laughs> so sometimes we, we make, we think this is the way. Concentration is the way. And if we are to speak of way, it is living with wisdom in the face of circumstances. Not the capacity to concentrate. It's too narrow, it's too exclusive, it's too privileged and it's only a minority who have that sustainable power. That's coming from the voice of somebody who has had the immense privilege of listening to the meditators' minds and tens of thousands of them. So, here's a situation where we hear of Zongchen teachings who spell out a very important reminder to us. The object is not so significant. Here's a situation which could be regarded as something of a contrast to that, which is almost, we say, almost by speaking of breath, speaking of body, in a way we're saying the object is significant. Where is the fusion of these? Perhaps the fusion is recognizing that one object and the characteristic of one object and the characteristic of another object is not as different as we imagine. The characteristic of one object and the characteristic of another object is not as different as we imagine. Can we be as clear about this, so clear that object or objectless meditation makes no difference? Sometimes, as I was exploring a little bit today in the afternoon and regularly with the one-to-one meetings with people, with small groups and so forth, I will ask, as I was asking somebody today upstairs, what is, actually, to just backstep here for a moment, it's always a delight to uh, meet and explore uh, the processes of meditation with people whose lives have been blessed by knowing nothing about Buddhism people who have never picked up one of the the huge reservoir of Dharma books which are available, who have no idea what the Buddha taught, and even better, have no interest to know what the Buddha taught, and is just concerned and interested in to look into life without all this uh, extra information. And sometimes it's an incredible blessing. One doesn't know how blessed one is when one knows so little. It, re- it re- really is. So in many things, and this is one example in life, where when the, when the world says it's good to know a great deal, anything that the world tells you it's good to know, think opposite and you'll be closer to the truth. So this is a classic example. The, li- the, li- the less you know about Buddhism, insight meditation, the tradition, spiritual practices and the whole outpouring of teachings you regard yourself as one of the blessed human beings on this earth. So that, when sometimes I have opportunity daily to ask somebody how, what's, what's the difference between the object called a thought no matter how many thoughts are coming and going and the object called a breath, no matter how many breaths are coming and going. What's 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 the similarity or what's the difference? And sometimes a person will say, as someone was saying today, "Well, breath. Just it just it just comes and passes. And then, what about?" And the thoughts. Yes, the thoughts just come and pass. Ah, so a common characteristic between the breath and the thought is that they come and pass in consciousness. Ah, change, ah, impermanence. Ah, that rings a bell somewhere in the tradition. And then one asks a little bit more, but what else is the characteristic of being with the breath, being with a particular mood or mind state or state of mind which is arising? The person again, no no uh, knowledge of the, the teachings and the kind of emphasis which goes with the teachings, will say, well, it seems like you can't hold on to any of them. Thought comes and goes, you can't hold on to it, it does its dance, and the breath comes and goes. Even when one is concentrated, one doesn't seem to be able to stay with it that long. Oh, can't, can't hold on to things. And there's something unsatisfactory about the situation. Whatever we want to really stay on and hold on to, somehow it refuses to cooperate. Impermanent, unsatisfactory, and the person may say, it just seems rather just going on like it goes on, rather impersonal. And say, "Oh, this rings a bell somewhere." Been, this has been spoken of for the last 2, 3,000, thousand years. How come the mind of every single meditator who ever sat on this earth and, did, and engaged in this unusual activity of sitting and watching the breath and seeing that one couldn't hold on to the breath have all come to the same agreement, the same acknowledgement and the same recognition that the characteristic of breathing, it comes and goes, a characteristic of thoughts, it comes and goes, that is unsatisfactory that one can't keep a handle on it and it seems just to be going on in the nature, it seems rather impersonal, rather not self. And if one asks anybody else who's ever engaged in the same activity, all, to varying degrees, seem to have come to the same recognition, without exception. So those 97 retreats that one has done, that the 98th, 99th and 100th, offer no hope, because it will still be changing, it would still be impermanent, it would still be unreliable and it would still be unsatisfactory because one can't have it as one would like. Therefore it's not worth holding on to. So, in bringing our interest to this, our awareness uh, to this in our looking at this, if that's the character, the feature, if that's what stands out for us with anything which is called an object, anything, anything which attention is bound up with, is connected with, that really stands out for us, then in a way nothing is worth holding on to, making a fuss about. If that's the way that that keeps revealing itself to us, what's it revealing as well? is it perhaps revealing that in a way an object isn't really something of itself so when the Dzogchen masters say keep the eyes open abide with an expansive and choiceless awareness be aware of everything. Be aware of the sky and all, what else, all that's taking place. In a way, isn't that the same essential message that's actually taking place here as well? That an object only becomes an object when we impregnate it with some special significance. And we begin to make a fuss about it. And we begin to apply labels to it. And we begin to attach significance to it. And we begin to give importance to concentration. And we begin to build up something, which means we begin to resist else, what is other. So I say there's no difference between choiceless awareness and chosen awareness. Choiceless observation and particular observation. And I think the truth of things is constantly revealing itself. It's abundantly clear. And no matter what the disturbance is going on, no matter what the depth which is going on, no matter how many times we are with the breath or the body, or how many times we are not with the breath and not with the body, I say it doesn't make any difference. The realisation of that, Makes one incredibly happy. No more effort. Effort's pointless. No more concentration. Oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> I think we can discover all of this easily here. Yeah, easy. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings explore life. May all beings abide (laughs) expansively.